Do you like movies? I think most of us do. You know, maybe not all movies, or maybe not even most movies that they make these days. But, uh, you know, when you've got a really, really good movie, it's just sort of fun to be able to relax and immerse yourself in the movie and, and let it sort of become a part of you. And uh, the key to any good movie has to be the story. You know, and, and really, that's what that's all movies are. Movies are, are stories of visual form. And everyone loves a good story. My favorite kind of movie is the kind of movie where, in the end, something gets twisted and turned and you didn't see it coming. You know, where you, you think it's going one direction, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's the, there's the uh, turn, there's the twist, and it all makes a different type of sense now. And the Bible, by the way, has a lot of stories like that, stories with uh, twists and turns in it. Uh, for example, the book of Judges. If you want to uh, study a, a book that just has lots of irony, lots of twists and turns, the book of Judges is a place uh, where you can uh, see a whole lot of movies, lot, or uh, movies, a lot of stories like that. Uh, one of my favorite stories has to be the story of, uh, of Deborah in the book of Judges. And she was a prophetess, and uh, she, at one point, tells a commander of Israel's armies. This guy's name was Barak. Not that one. This guy's name was Barak. And uh, she tells him, because she received a word from the Lord, she said, get 10,000 men and uh, go attack Sisera and his men. But Barak was afraid. He was afraid to go without Deborah because Deborah heard from God. And Barak wanted that little bit of extra juice. He wanted a little bit of extra of God on his side. And so he refused to go unless Deborah went with him. And Deborah said, okay, I'll go with you. But Sisera, the great army general Sisera, will not be delivered over to you. That honor will go to a woman. And so if you're reading the story for the first time, you think that, well, it's obvious Deborah, who is the woman that Sisera will be delivered over to, because she's really the only woman named in the story, and she's the, the hero, the judge, the, the great warrior and prophetess uh, of all of Israel, and so it's got to be Deborah, uh, but she's not the one. The death of the great army general Sisera came at the hands of an unnamed housewife. We never know her name. But that is who Sisera fell to. The honor could have been Barak's, but it fell to this unnamed woman. And that's a great story. The Bible is filled with stories like that. And when I say story, I don't mean fiction, because the Bible is real. The Bible tells true stories. But that's the way real life is, too. You look back at your own life, and and there were times in your own life when you had twists and turns and things that happened that you didn't see coming. And so your own life is like that. But perhaps one of the best stories in all of the Bible that has a twist at the end has to be the story of Israel itself. And you probably know the, the big major parts of the story of Israel. You know what God did for Israel that God gave Israel, or really created Israel, by choosing Abraham and his second son Isaac and his second son Jacob to be the patriarchs of this great nation, this, this nation that would be devoted to God. 
And Israel throughout the years gave, or God gave Israel promises. And these promises were promises that they were to believe. And sometimes they failed. And he gave them his law that they were to obey. And they certainly failed that. And God gave Israel a land. And he sent them prophets. And he sent them warriors and judges to keep Israel devoted to him. And even though God himself was Israel's king, God acquiesced and gave Israel what they wanted. They wanted a human king. And God gave Israel a human king when really they should have only recognized God as their king. And when the time was exactly right, God himself became flesh. And he became one of them. And he became their Messiah and their Savior and their Lord. But they rejected him. With the exception of a remnant that believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Israel rejected their own Messiah. And that sort of sums up the story of Israel. There's a lot that I left out. But there, that sums up the big story of Israel, and Israel had a chance to believe in their Messiah, but they blew it. They rejected him. And so now, they're on the outs, right? Now they're kicked to the curb, right? Because they refused to believe in their own Messiah. They're no longer part of God's plan, right? Well, not so fast. Just when you think that's the end of the story for Israel. There's a little bit of a twist. And something happens that you might not have seen coming. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to Romans chapter 11. If you have, an access, if you have access to a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 11. We'll look at verses 11 through 24 today in Romans chapter 11, and the words will be on the screen behind me. In Romans chapter 11, Beginning in verse 11, and I'm going to ask that we all stand together in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll read out loud, and you could read silently. The Scripture says, and this is Paul writing about Israel, he says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Verse 15. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, 
Remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Heavenly Father, I pray that you help us make sense of this passage today. Help us to understand it. Because by understanding it, we might be able to understand your plan. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now in the verses, just prior to the ones we read, late in, uh, in chapter, chapter 10, or excuse me, chapter 11, uh, verses 9 and 10 or so, um, Paul divides Israel into two groups. Believing Israel, who were chosen by God, and unbelieving Israel, who were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. And people, again, tend to uh, misunderstand the idea of being hardened against God. You know, when, when you have, it's, it's not that hard to understand. When you have the opportunity to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and you refuse, what happens is, spiritually, your heart grows a little bit more hard toward Him. Your heart grows a little bit more cold. It's a little bit more difficult to hear the Spirit of God speaking to you. When you tell God no, it's a dangerous thing because something happens to you spiritually and it's not good. It's the hardening of your hearts. And so uh, when Israel rejected Jesus, their hearts became hardened. But, but God's hardening of Israel's hearts, that's not, God didn't harden their hearts because he's vindictive. He didn't harden their hearts because he, he's vengeful. He didn't harden their hearts because he has some type of malice against them. But rather, God hardening Israel's hearts was actually an act of mercy toward us. The unbelief of hardened Israel opened the way for salvation to come to us Gentiles. And I'm speaking as if all of us in this room are Gentiles. I don't know your ethnic makeup. But probably the majority of us are. And so here's the unexpected twist. Salvation came to us Gentiles because Israel grew hard and cold and rejected their own Messiah. But the twist is this. Salvation coming to the Gentiles will open up salvation to Israel who once rejected their own Messiah. 
It will provoke, our salvation will provoke unbelieving Israel to jealousy. Look at verse 11 again. Go back to verse 11. It says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. In other words, Israel's, if they were to stumble as to fall, that means they couldn't get up it again, again. And that means that Israel's unbelief would be absolutely permanent for all time. And, and Paul says, no, it's temporary. Their unbelief is temporary. Verse 11 continues, he says, But by Israel's transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. And so here's the amazing thing. From the very beginning of God's promises to Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, in Genesis chapter 12, God's plan of salvation included the whole world. From the very beginning, Genesis 12, verse 3, God's plan of salvation included the entire world. God would bring salvation to the entire world through Israel. And so here, here's what's amazing to me, that God's plan will be carried out whether Israel obeys him or whether they disobey him. God will bring salvation. He will make salvation available to every person if they will only receive it. And so if Israel was obedient and they believed and they received Jesus as their own Messiah, then they would be the messengers to all the rest of us Gentiles to receive him too. And if Israel was disobedient and they did not believe the promise and they did not receive Jesus as their Messiah, then God would nevertheless grant salvation to us Gentiles. And the salvation of the Gentiles will eventually provoke Israel to jealousy. And Israel will finally return to their own Messiah. And it's this second scenario that has occurred. It is this second scenario where Israel said, by and large, said no to Jesus. And so God is carrying out his plan anyway. And it is through the salvation of the Gentiles that Israel, the nation that God loves, will eventually come back to him. And so do you see this, how Israel's unbelief led to Gentile belief. And what we didn't see coming was Gentile belief will lead to Israel's belief. In verse 12, Paul looks a little closer at this relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. He says in verse 12, Now, if Israel's transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches, for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Paul says that Israel's unbelief in Jesus results in us Gentiles receiving all of the benefits of being adopted children into God's family, of being citizens into God's kingdom. And so we, Gentiles, because Israel said no, we, by receiving Jesus, we have the Spirit of God we have eternal life. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have the promises of God. We have a new resurrected body awaiting us. We have the word of God. We have the people of God to depend on. We have the fruit of the Spirit. We have the giftedness from the Spirit. We have these benefits and all the others that we could go through the entire Old and New Testament 
We have all of this. And if we get all these benefits, how much more will Israel benefit when they come back to the Lord? Verses 13 and 14. Paul says, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. And as much then as I, Paul, am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen, he's talking about Jews, and save some of them. Paul was a Jew. Well, what happened when Paul met Jesus on that road to Damascus? Jesus told him right there, I need you to take my message to the Gentiles. It took Paul some time to process it all. But he spent the rest of his life doing exactly that. I mean, Paul went all out. He dedicated his whole life to obeying his calling from Jesus. And part of Paul's motivation was to bring so many Gentiles to faith in the Jewish Messiah that it would provoke Israel to jealousy. And they would turn to the Lord as well. Question. Have you ever, if you've studied this, or maybe you're asking this question in your, in your mind right now, how, how, how is it that Gentiles getting saved is going to provoke someone else to jealousy? I mean, what kind of motivating factor is that? I mean, how, how can that exactly provoke Jews to jealousy? Why, why would Gentiles getting, getting saved cause Jews to return to the Lord? Well, let me... Let me put it like this. Uh, let's go back in your memory to when you, were, when you were a child. Okay? For some of us, it's a longer journey back then than others. But let's say, let's go back in our mind to when we were a child. Okay? And was there something really that you liked to do with your dad? Those of you that had dad in the house, was there something you really liked to do with him? Maybe it was going fishing or playing catch, or, or maybe you remember sitting on his lap to drive the car because your feet couldn't reach the pedals, you know? You remember those times with, with your dad? How would you feel if your dad didn't do those things with you, but did those things with a neighbor kid down the street? You'd be jealous. You'd say, hey, that's my dad. I don't want someone else to have his attention and love. I don't want to be left out. It's for me. I don't know if it's exactly that way. Israel being provoked to jealousy and coming back to the Lord. But it may be. I think at least a part of it might be like that. The more us Gentiles become part of the family of God by believing in the Jewish Messiah, the more ethnic Jews see us enjoying all of the benefits promised to them in the Hebrew Scriptures, the more they, they might long to be a part of that. Verse 15, Paul writes, For if Israel's rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And so Israel is rejected by God because of their unbelief. And that has resulted in the world being reconciled to God. Crazy idea, but God pulled it off. How much more 
will their acceptance by God be because of their belief? How much more will that result in life from the dead? Now, when I, I read the words life from the dead, my mind, I'm, I'm immediately taken to the promise that we have a resurrection body that we'll one day receive and that we will literally be resurrected from the dead. But, but here I think, Paul is simply contrasting the current state of unbelieving Israel, which is dead, to that which will be when they are spiritually awakened, life, that they will spiritually experience a resurrection, a spiritual resurrection from the dead. There's going to be a change in, in status from spiritually dead to be spiritually alive. Now, the other thing Paul says in this verse is something we've talked about already, the rejection of unbelieving Israel results in the possibility of anyone in the world believing in Jesus and being reconciled to God. And so the bad news of Israel's unbelief has resulted in good news, the good news of our belief. Verse 16, Paul says, If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. Time out. Where do we get a cooking class come in? To all this. What in the world is Paul doing? Did he get hungry? What is he talking about? Well, let me read to you what he's talking about. Because God told Moses in Numbers chapter 15, verses 17 through 21, these words. This is God speaking to Moses. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying this Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land where I bring you, then it shall be that when you eat of the food of the land, you shall lift it up, you shall lift up an offering to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall lift up a cake as an offering, as the offering of the threshing floor, so you shall lift it up. From the first of your dough, you shall give to the Lord an offering throughout your generations. So, here's what Paul is talking about. After Israel would enter the promised land, they were to take their very first harvest of grain. They were to grind it up, and they were to make cakes of bread. And the first piece of dough each family made as a cake was offered to the Lord. You know, sometimes the first of the harvest in the Bible is called the first fruits. And, and so when the first fruits are offered, when the first piece is offered to the Lord, not only does that piece become holy, consecrated, set apart for God, but the whole rest of the lump, all the rest of the harvest becomes holy too. Okay? And so that's what Paul is talking about. And this, this is an illustration in Paul's mind of believing Jews. Those, that remnant of Jews that believed and those that follow are Gentiles. And so when the, when the first fruits, when the first believing Jews believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that set us apart too. Even though we're thousands of years of, uh, removed, even though we've never personally met Paul or, or Peter or John, or any of those people that might consider themselves to be first fruits. We're made from the same stuff. We're holy as well. 
And so the Jews that believed in Christ, they, they were the first fruits. And they've offered themselves to the Lord. And they've become holy. They've become consecrated. They've become set apart. And because they are holy, so is the rest of the harvest. And that includes us. This concept continues to this day. You remember way back, maybe it was January, when we began preaching through Romans. And we, we hit that very famous verse, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. It's to the Jew first. They're the first fruits. And also us. And then in verse 16, Paul uses a different metaphor. He stops talking about the dough and he starts talking about a tree. And he carries this metaphor on throughout the end of this passage that we read. An olive tree with branches. He says in verse 16, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. Okay, And so if you can imagine this tree, this tree represents the people of God. And the root of God's people, that's going to be Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Okay, Those are the patriarchs. That's the root of the tree. And if they are set apart, if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are set apart, then the whole tree, all of God's people, all of Israel is holy as well. And you might say, well, wait a minute. What about us believing Gentiles? Is it, just, is it just Israel that's holy? What about us believing Gentiles? Where do we fit in? And by the way, in this tree, you got a whole bunch of Jews that don't believe in Jesus. Why are they a part of the tree? Well, that's a good question. Let's see how Paul deals with it. And here's what Paul does. Paul makes a distinction between wild olive trees and cultivated olive trees. And if you're not familiar with the difference, I want to uh, show you uh, what the difference is between a wild olive tree and a cultivated olive tree. Up on the screens to the left, you have a wild olive tree. And I don't know if you can see, but it's, it's bent to the side. It's overgrown. It's just doing its own thing. Okay, there's, there's nothing really good and healthy about it. Uh, it it's, not, it's not helpful to you if you're trying to have an, uh, an, an olive harvest, to have a bunch of wild olive trees grown all sideways and twisted. It's just not conducive. And so over the years, over centuries, really, uh, farmers would cultivate olive trees. And, they would, uh, and so you see a cultivated olive tree over on the, um, on the other side. And so farmers today, they will cultivate certain brands of cotton, certain types of cotton. Uh, ranchers will uh, genetically breed certain types of cattle. It's the same type of thing with, with horticulture, with trees. And so the olive tree on the right, that olive tree has been cultivated. That means the dead branches are pruned away. It's properly cared for with the right amount of uh, water, the right amount of sunlight, the right amount of nutrients. And down at the bottom, you'll also see a difference between the size of the seeds. Wild olive trees produce small seeds. Cultivated ones, much larger, about twice the size, which results in a lot more fruit. And so what Paul is going to say is that us Gentile believers we're from the wild olive tree. I mean, we're just sort of crazy and wooly and out there. We're from the wild. There's no telling what kind of background we come from. All right? 
We're from a wild olive tree, and Jewish believers are from a cultivated olive tree. Verse 17, Paul says, But if some of the branches were broken off, those are unbelieving Jews. They didn't believe, and so they were broken off from the tree. They were dead, so they were pruned away. If some of the branches were broken off, and you Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So let's stop right here for a minute. This tree has Abraham and Isaac and Jacob for the roots. The tree itself has God's people Israel, but many Jews don't believe in their own Messiah, and so God has pruned away these dead branches of unbelieving Jews. And then God took believing Gentiles, no matter what their family tree looked like, no matter how messed up and depraved their ancestors were, no matter what ethnicity they are, no matter their sex, no matter their history, no matter any other characteristic about them, no matter how wild and messed up and nasty and undeserving they are, God took these people who, if they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, He grafted them in to His own tree. Let me explain what grafting is. When an olive seed germinates, it produces a, a stem that begins to grow out. That stem is called a shoot. And eventually, leaves and fruit will develop on that shoot. But back in Paul's day, farmers would sometimes, here's what they would do. they did it in, in what we would consider, if you know this passage, reverse order, which is really the right order. They would take a shoot from a cultivated olive tree, they would smear the ends with clay, and they would bind the shoot with cloth or straw into a wild olive tree. Okay, So they would take a good cultivated shoot and put it into a wild olive tree. Paul says that God, what God has done, he's reversed the process with us in unbelieving Gentiles. He's taken us, and a farmer would never do this, but he's taken us from a wild olive tree and he's grafted us in to a cultivated tree, which is his people. Now we became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. You know, we ought to be absolutely, completely grateful that God has even allowed us to be a part of his family. There's no room for Christians to be arrogant about our status with God. Being a part of God's family is a gift. Verse 18, Paul says, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Don't be arrogant toward the Jews. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Listen, don't ever forget that you have a Bible written by Jews. You have a faith that comes from the Jews. You have a Savior who is a Jew. And you serve a God who loves the Jews. Jews are to be honored. Jews are to be respected and defended. It is no wonder why, throughout history, so much anti-Semitism 
has dwelt and lived in our world. There's no logical reason for it. But you go anywhere in the world to this very day, or you read up in history and you go anywhere in the world, it is the Jews that are maligned. It is the Jews that are put down. In almost every culture, there are people that hate the Jews. That hatred is not from God. It is from the devil. Verse 18, even so, reminds us that it is not we who support Abraham, but Abraham supports us. So being part of God's family, it is a precious gift that God is gracious enough to allow us to enjoy. Look at verses 19 through 21. We read, you will say then, hey, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Boy, God must love me. God must have seen something good in me to make me a part of his family. Boy, isn't God lucky that he got me? That's the attitude that Paul's trying to fight off. He says, yeah, you're going to say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Oh, quite right, he says. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. You know, the only thing that has grafted us into the family of God is our faith. But there's something that can destroy faith, and it's arrogance. Arrogance can absolutely destroy faith. Faith, by its very nature, is humble. Because when you come to God, place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you bow down, at least in your heart, toward Him. You humble yourself before God. And you make a request for Him to show mercy to you. But the moment you become prideful, and arrogance in your standing before God, what do you think you've done to your faith in Him? Have you not begun to say, look what I've done. Look what I've achieved. No longer is your faith in the one who, who humbled Himself beyond all others and died on the cross for you. No longer is your faith in Him. But now, you've achieved some great thing. Now you deserve to be a part of God's family. Look at how obedient you are. Look at how righteous you are. Compare the morality of your life to the immorality of others. You are so religious and so devout, while others are so irreverent and perverse. And before you know it, you've committed the sin of presumption. And that is the sin of Israel. It's the sin, let me rephrase that, of unbelieving Israel. Unbelieving Israel thought, we have a good standing before God. And they didn't humble themselves. And their belief was lost. Generation after generation, their belief was lost. And if you're not careful, you may one day discover that although you presumed yourself to be a part of God's family, you actually, in your arrogance, convinced yourself of a lie. And it'll be a bad day when you find that out. Verse 22. 
Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. You know, sometimes people wonder if this verse teaches that a Christian can lose his salvation. And as I've mentioned before, I don't like that phrase, lose your salvation, because it implies that somehow you gained it on your own merits, and by your own merits you might lose it. Here's what this verse and the rest of the New Testament actually teaches. If your faith in in the Lord Jesus Christ is real, then you are obligated and you're able to continue believing Him. So do it. You might say, well, what about the person who, who used to believe in Christ but doesn't anymore? If someone currently, right now, does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it really doesn't matter what you think or they think might have happened a long time ago. I say it doesn't matter because they are currently in spiritual danger. They need to begin following Christ. You see, I see no benefit in trying to appease my conscience that someone's faith many years ago will get them to heaven even though they've now discarded that faith. There's no peace in my mind for that. I mean, if I had a loved one who at one time at one time seemed uh, to have a real and vibrant faith in Jesus, but now they couldn't care less about God, yeah, I might hope that they're just backsliding and that their faith that I think they had in God a long time ago was real. But I know one thing for certain. I'd certainly be praying for them to return to the Lord. I'd be praying for them pretty hard. I certainly wouldn't be at ease about it. I mean, give me the Christian who is scared to death that his loved one is going to miss out on God's kingdom unless they repent. Give me that Christian over the Christian who is content that their loved one maybe someday a long time ago had a faith in Jesus Christ. If someone were to say to me right now, hey, Pastor David, you're describing me. If someone said to me, Pastor, I got saved a long time ago, but I think I got saved. I'm not sure. I'm certainly not close to God like I should be. Am I still saved? I would ask that person one question. Who are you trusting in right now to save you? Who are you trusting in right now to save you? And if your answer to that, honestly and heartfelt answer to that, is... Jesus, then I would say, yeah, you're saved because that's who you're trusting in right now. And now I would tell you, if you will spend time with him in prayer, if you will spend time reading and hearing his word, if you will spend time with his people, then that faith that you have in him will grow. But if you never spend time with him, you never spend time in His Word, you never spend time with His people, then you can never truly be assured that you have eternal life. It'll be a mystery until it's one day revealed.
And that's a terrible way to live. Don't do that. If you think you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, start spending time with Him. And that faith will grow. You see, faith in the Lord is not something that happened once at a moment in time way back then. Faith in the Lord is something that happens daily. It continues to this day. You must continue in your faith. Verse 23, we read, And unbelieving Israel also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Paul is raising the possibility of unbelieving Israel coming to Jesus in mass. And if they believe in Jesus, God will receive them. Verse 24, Paul writes, For if you, talking about believing Gentiles, if you believing Gentiles, you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and you're grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? It won't be anything for God to be able to save Israel. The invitation is ready for them. All they have to do is receive it. So if God can take people who are not His people and He can make them His people, God can certainly take people who are His people and make them his people again. The call for us today is for us to introspectively look at ourselves and answer this question. Do I currently, right now, have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone for my salvation? And if the answer to that question in your mind and in your heart is, no, then I want to invite you today to change that. I want to invite you, because I believe that God is calling you, I want to invite you to settle it now and to say to the Lord, Father, please forgive me of my sins. Show mercy to me. Help me have faith in Jesus.